Emily, I know that you do work on economics, but how do you connect something so worldly, so, so uh, mundane, having to do with the world, to theology, which seems so otherworldly? Yeah, great question, Jeff. Thanks for asking. I think that it's important to first think about the ways in which theology and the study of God actually does affect our everyday lives because who we worship, how we worship actually orders and affects a lot of our relationships and how we view the world. And so when I think about economics, there's a lot of places I could look. One is the doctrine of creation and understanding that doctrine is not just about whether and how God created the world, but how he creates and sustains the world, his goals for our relationships with each other and the creation. And then that's also related to an eschatology or the new creation, because we can really only understand what creation is for in light of Christ and the new creation. So there's a lot of different theological points that we can draw on. What about you when you think about your work in race? How do you relate to that theologically? Yeah, I feel the same way. There's so many different theological themes that have to come together in order to begin to speak into the world. So I'll give you a couple examples. The first one is what we call theological anthropology. Not just that God made human beings, but what God made human beings to be. Are we souls with bodies? Are we bodies with souls? Or something else? I prefer to think of us as integrated wholes. And what does that mean for uh, something like race that has to do with the physical body? So that's theological anthropology, and it's connected to another area that we call Christology. What is Jesus? Not just who is Jesus, but what does it matter that Jesus has a physical body and that he was raised physically from the dead and that we confess that he will return physically to be with us? What does that mean about our physical bodies? Because race has to do with the physical body. So that's what we call systematic theology. When we start to fit these different areas of theology together into an organized way of thinking. And what are other ways that someone might think about systematic theology or impressions that someone might have about theology? Yeah, for students of theology, some of us are going to know that um, systematics is kind of getting a bad rap these days because people are beginning to ask that question, who does this system work for? And also, who organized the system? At its very basic level, I'll quote from the IVP Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms. This is what we mean by systematic theology. It's the attempt to summarize religious truth or the belief system of a religious group, such as us Christians, through an organized system. There it is. Organized system of thought carried out within a particular cultural and intellectual context. So, there are varying degrees of organization in different systematic theologies. And that's what I think um, Dr. Karkainen is going to talk about with us today, the varying degrees to which people feel like the system has to be super organized. And I think that's that range of organization is, is helpful to think about. But we're all sort of implicitly doing systematic theology when we do Bible study or when we think about questions about our ethical lives, our relationships together. Economics is really all about our relationships 
with people and who God is has something to say about that. And we just aren't always pulling apart all the different pieces to look at them more closely. And so that process of looking at the pieces and how they might relate and in their context is really useful. I think that it helps give us a broader picture of God and also makes us more humble as we try to do that and try to understand a little bit more about what God is like. Well, we're excited to bring to you this conversation with Dr. Veli Mati Karkainen, who is a professor of systematic theology at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's written a book that's been really helpful to me called An Introduction to Ecclesiology, which is the theology of the church. And the subtitle there is Historical, Global, and Interreligious Perspectives. Dr. Karkainen is really known for ecumenical and global theology. He's also most recently the author of Theological Renewal for the Third Millennium, which is out through Wiffenstock. My name is Velimatti Kerkeinen. For the past 21 years, uh, I've been teaching systematic theology at Fuller Theological Seminary uh, in Pasadena, California, and I also have a teaching position at the University of Helsinki, uh, where I originally come from, namely Finland. When you meet people and they have no idea what you do, and they might ask you, what do you do? How do you describe that to them in a way that they might understand? I often begin from my secondary job, which is that I'm also an ordained uh, clergy person. So I do church, preach and other things. But when I tell people that I'm teaching systematic theology, they're like, what? And I say, I'm teaching Christian doctrine, like the doctrine of Christ, creation and so forth. So the name systematic theology is quite esoteric, but Christian doctrine is what I do for a living. And do you have any particularly favorite doctrines or specialty areas? Yes, I do. Uh, since my theological youth, I have been doing quite a lot of work with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, technically called pneumatology. And I also do many things with the church. So those are my two favorite areas. But because I teach the whole sequence of Christian doctrine every year, so I have a chance to, to review also other Christian doctrines. I'd love to ask you about pneumatology because on university staff, in the churches that we've been a part of, out there in the American Christian scene, the ways that people talk about the Holy Spirit are diverse. They're many, dramatically different from each other. And I've read some of your works and I have noticed how uh, you are able to and how you have a method of looking at many different traditions. When you look at the landscape of pneumatologies and the way people talk about the Holy Spirit, what do you see and do you have a recommendation for us about that? Let me go back to the beginnings, namely to the Bible. If you read uh, the Bible, even cursorily, it, it has a lot of different testimonies to and experiences of the Spirit implying that uh, the Holy Spirit, who of course blows where it wills, cannot be contained. So what I'm trying to do, both as a minister and as a theologian, I seek to open my mind and my spiritual eyes to embrace the whole fullness or as much of the fullness and diversity of what the Spirit is doing. Like, for example, the Spirit is 
doing many things in my spiritual life, uh, obviously, in spiritual gifts. But the same spirit is also working in creation, even society, and among other faith traditions. So my recommendation for my students and for my colleagues is to open up to the, all the riches and perhaps mysterious and unexpected ways that the spirit blows. Sometimes you, go, you cannot even hear the blowing, and at times there is a storm. So mysterious and unexpected. I have found that one of the ways that people talk about the Holy Spirit is as if the mysterious and unexpected are actually expected and non-mysterious. In other words, that the miraculous interventions of the Holy Spirit ought to be the regular daily life of the disciple and that we ought to be able to see it anywhere and to go even further that those who cannot see it are somehow blind or ignorant. Can you talk about that? Um, I would be very cautious to tell the Spirit how the Spirit might be working in the world. When I read the New Testament, think about, for example, how big a difference there is between, say, 1 Corinthians and, say, the book of Hebrews in, in relation to the Holy Spirit. In, in 1 Corinthians, a Pentecostal church, so to speak, all kinds of things are happening. In the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is barely mentioned. And even if you look at uh, different Gospels, say, Gospel of Mark, as opposed to John. In John, at the Gospel of John, the Spirit is everywhere but not visible or tangible, like I am living water and those kinds of things. Whereas in, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is a charismatic exorcist and healer, but they both belong to the diversity of the Spirit's work. So I would advise to honor as much the silent, invisible, hidden work of the Spirit as much as a more experiential, perhaps enthusiastic, who are we to tell the Spirit what the Spirit is up to? That's helpful. Yeah, I'm thinking about the Spirit as being mysterious, and you, you teach systematic theology. There's a lot of ways to interpret the, or even use systematic theology or do systematic theology, and even the word systematic or systematizing things can be done in a, in a lot of different ways or used in a lot of different ways. And, and then you have the spirit who's mysterious. And, and how, do you, how do you think about systematic theology and ways in which that could be done well or maybe become too systematic, perhaps given that the spirit is mysterious? First of all, the nomenclature systematic theology is most unfortunate because it gives the impression that we are in the business of really building a system as if you, got, you have several blocks or several boxes, and you even freeze the spirit into a box. What systematic theology is in contemporary understanding, I often compare it to a web, a network, where you are seeking to relate, say, for example, what you are saying of the Holy Spirit, you seek to relate to what you say of God, otherwise humanity, creation. So it's an elastic, flexible network of ideas, you seek to be organized in your thinking, but not systematic. And certainly, there's nothing of the idea of building a system. And therefore, when you talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, you are looking at biblical, historical, philosophical, contemporary, global, and other viewpoints, and, and you are seeking to discern rather than to define everything. 
you are seeking to look at various ways we may approach the work of the Holy Spirit, reminding us all the time of the fact that a finite human mind can only do so much. We do not uh, have God's perspective. Right. And the Holy Spirit is also inspecting us at the same time. We are not only studying the Spirit, studying the spirit but the Spirit knows more than our own spirit of who we are. That's what Paul says. That's so helpful. Helpful. Yeah, yeah. especially because the frozen sense of systematic theology is the one that I'm finding many of our staff reacting strongly against, especially when those frozen and immovable aspects or, or senses of theology become weaponized. Right, and, and particularly in the evangelical world, and I, I belong to the evangelical world, in the evangelical world, and the more conservative, the more tendency to, to really build a system. And for example, we talk about not only about the Holy Spirit, say about uh, atonement or something, that this is the strict, narrow way. This is the way you, uh, for example, define what happened uh, at the cross. Whereas in the Bible, you have all kinds of simple metaphors, images, in this case of atonement, the same of the Holy Spirit, or when we talk about uh, humanity, theological anthropology, there's many ways that the Bible and Christian tradition speaks of who we are, like what is the nature of human nature. In the study of theology, we seek to broaden our mind. The next step, sometimes incoming students, incoming as in coming to study, begin to study systematic theology, they also think that it is very abstract and has no relevance to anything. I have been for decades, and I'm a practicing minister. I did a service yesterday, the last one uh, preached. In my understanding, ultimately, systematic theology is the most practical or relevant discipline, rightly understood, because what you really need when you do a hospital visit, when you prepare a sermon or you talk about how to do the church, is to have a balanced, holistic view of everything that you have learned. If you go to talk to a person on the deathbed, you don't lecture on Augustine or Greek exegesis. It's very good that you know Greek exegesis and Augustine. But um, you are seeking to put and pull together everything that you know of Bible, history, philosophy. That's what systematic theology is. It's not an attempt to build a system, but to pull everything together, and therefore it's also the queen of theological sciences. I love that, the, especially what I can hear there in the example of pastoral ministry by a hospital bed, the difference between defining and discerning. <laughs> so to spout definitions by a hospital bed would be quite right. unpleasant if I were the patient. Yeah, right. thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that was helpful. I'm sorry, if I was acting as a patient there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, Pastor. Yeah. You talked about expanding your imagination when you're, when you're studying theology, and I was wondering if you could give an example of that, maybe relating to the hospital bed or, or another example, just how expanding your theological imagination is, I don't want to say useful because of, it doesn't just have to be useful, but how studying theology is expanding your imagination and, and why that's a good thing. Let me give an example with regard to a particular doctrinal topic, which in classical tradition we call it ordo salutis, the order of salvation. 
if you go to old books, you will find very carefully defined lists, beginning from election, calling, justification, sanctification, all the way to glorification. And that's not bad. But the point is that the Bible speaks of salvation in, in diverse ways, in holistic ways. It approaches it from different perspectives. The way in contemporary theology we do order salutis, first of all, we don't often use the name, is to paint pictures in, in various uh, theological colors of many aspects and dimensions of uh, God's salvific work. For example, of course, you can talk about justification, sanctification, but you also talk about healing, emotional or uh, physical healing. You talk about empowerment. You also talk about how you, as a saved person, uh, help uh, save the rest of the world, like uh, environment, social justice. It is a beautiful, multidimensional, uh, almost like a diamond. It reflects various kinds of colors. That takes expanding your imagination. It's much easier to say, okay, there are eight steps. Da, 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 da. And that's it. If you don't have it, you are not an Orthodox Christian. Yeah. Right, right. So I love the idea of expanding our imaginations. I can imagine that some of our listeners who are really strict about their confessions, for example, would feel that the expansion leads them away from a precise adherence to their confession. And in a way, it does. <laughs> Constructively speaking. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So can you talk about that tension? What would you say to someone who's concerned about that? First of all, we have to remember that even the most, most ancient creeds, say Nicaea, Constantinople, they are not frozen strict limitations of what we believe. They are rather precise attempts to say something very important, for example, about what we believe about Christ. But it has to be tested and appropriated and reappropriated in every generation against, for example, our current ways of thinking, the patterns of thought. They are very different from Greco-Roman world. Or as a, because I'm an ES, I'm a Lutheran minister. Of course, I try to stick with confessions, and we have several of them, a fairly big book. Um, but it's not like a rule book as for the scouts. It is rather pointer to what uh, makes Lutheranism. And the way I understand nowadays, for example, many of the Augsburg confessions, I leave them out and I treat them differently from what, for example, they did in the 17th or 16th century. It's faithfulness not to the letter, but to the spirit of the confession. Yeah, that's really helpful to think about a pointer versus a rule book. Yeah. Yeah, how to, how to live things out in different times. Sometimes I learned from Sarah Coakley that the famed theologian, when you talk about the creeds or confessions, they're more like horizon. You, like, uh, you, you have a horizon like that, the literal horizon. You will see the world through many colors. It, it points to a something big rather than, like I said, a rule book for beginning scouts. It can be very concerning when I hear some of our students, for example, or, or clergy, talk about the Bible itself as a quote-unquote rule book. Yeah. Or, yeah. or a game plan or something reductionistic right. like that. that right. Yeah. 
A Bible is a narrative book, poems, parables, and to be biblical is to, to seek to read the Bible as the way it is written, as opposed to tell the Bible that you ought to be a, a rule book or a doctrinal treasure. There are very few doctrinal things in the Bible, but our doctrines hopefully are based on the Bible. Like I sometimes tell my students, and some of them don't get it at the first hearing, what makes systematic theology different from biblical theology is that on the one hand, we need to study carefully the Bible, and then we have to go beyond what the Bible says, not against. Beyond, in a sense, that we ask many questions that the Bible does not. Like the Bible, for example, doesn't talk about uh, contemporary science or doesn't talk about um, colonialism. So I ask many questions that go way beyond the Bible. At the end of the day, when I have constructed or painted the doctrine, I, I go back and uh, see, discern that hopefully it's not against the Bible. For many more conservative schools, it's like as opposed to Fuller, uh, systematic theology is nothing else but a collection of biblical passages on a given topic, period. It has very little to do with, and I don't want to mention names here, but it has little to do with how we understand contemporary systematic theology in the way that I, I mentioned to you. The ways you've talked about expanding your horizons or, you know, looking at a horizon and growing your imagination. That's certainly how I experience theology and enriching my faith in the way that I see the world. And I can see why you certainly would love what you do and see why that matters. I'd, I'd love to just hear why you love what you do and, and maybe what frustrates you about theology or because clearly you're, you're seeing why it matters. So when you see theology being done, that doesn't matter. Or why sometimes it seems to people that, as you've hinted, it's, it's a thing that doesn't make a difference in the world. First of all, I'm very grateful to God that of all the disciplines that I could have chosen, and I didn't do my first degree in theology, I did it in philosophy and education before both of you were born. I was still in my 20s when I landed on, on theology, so I'm very grateful that God led me to become a theologian. In hindsight, that was my dream, even when I didn't know it. But more precisely, I'm also very grateful that I was given the opportunity to do systematic and ecumenical theology. I would have loved to study the Bible. I love church history. I could do probably practical or pastoral theology. But those, in my book, subservants of, of the real thing, which is to try to put together a, a vision of Christian faith and, and, and life. And therefore, uh, I so much enjoy, after many decades of having taught Christian doctrine, I so much enjoy going back to the classroom and teaching again and again, because first of all, the way I now teach, as opposed to, for example, when I came to Fuller for the first time 21 years ago, those classes are quite different, even though the topics have not changed much. It is a living, dynamic, progressive thing. For example, I, I so much enjoy creating new courses. Just a new course that I'm teaching in winter is new developments in ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. I've been mulling over <laughs> ecclesiology for at least 30 years, and I think that I know basically everything that you have to know 
about there. But now I, I was it's so excited, exciting to put together this new course. And of course, I'm using this one a new textbook on uh, who was the writer. Oh, very much the Yeah, I, I have several copies of that first edition. I'm looking forward to getting the second edition. We would love to know, what do you wish people asked you that you never get to talk about? There are so many questions, I think, but one of the questions that I'm still thinking myself is like, why are you the kind of theologian that you are? Like, what made you who you are? Beginning from the fact that I'm an evangelical, I'm a Protestant, as opposed to being something else. And I myself don't know the answer to the, the question, other than perhaps providence. Is there anything that you're working on currently? My next book, which is in the pipeline, is quite interesting. Its title is The End of All Things is at Hand, A Christian Eschatology in Dialogue with Islam and Natural Sciences. Ooh. So I create constructive Christian doctrine of eschatology by a dialogue with Islamic teaching, Muslim teaching, and then also natural sciences, including also brain study. And those kinds of eschatologies are quite rare. Yeah. Perhaps no one else has ever done it. So, so it's also interdisciplinary, interreligious. That is very yeah. exciting. I can't help myself but ask this last question. Why undertake something like that? Why would a, a, an evangelical Protestant, systematic theologian who teaches at Fuller, premier evangelical educational institution, do something interreligious? Why do that? And the interreligious part goes back to my own life history. I was still a young theologian 30 years ago when I had a chance to live and teach theology in Thailand with my young family. And I'm fluent in Thai. I, I gained fluency in Thai, so I was teaching under Thai leadership uh, in Bangkok. In a predominantly Buddhist country, where there was a sizable Islamic minority, I had studied in a premier European university, and I guess I knew the stuff. But it so bothered me that I couldn't find any connection between my own way of teaching theology and what my neighbors believe. And so, so I, I began a... Very painful and painstaking study, first of all, Theravada Buddhism, and then I have gained some other things. And, and I, was, I became convinced that um, in a world of um, many faith traditions, Christian theology has to establish connections when we study the Bible, when we teach Christian doctrine. And then I also became convinced when I moved to Fuller 21 years ago, because we are interdisciplinary, we have for example, School of Psychology, where you can do a degree in neurosciences. I became convinced of the fact that I also have to expand my horizons towards uh, interdisciplinary study. And so, here you are. I often call my theology interdenominational, ecumenical, interdisciplinary, and interreligious, but deeply and solidly evangelical. And that's the way I teach our Christian doctrine at Fuller. To be honest, that sounds like what InnoVarsity aspires to. Well, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to be with us while you're here. Thank you. You've been listening to Theology And, a podcast of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Thanks so much for listening. You can check us out on social media. And visit us on the web at theologyandpodcast.com. Theology And.